This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello, and welcome to Witnesses of History for the beginning of September. And we're going to start back in 1666 and Samuel Pepys's report from the 2nd of September of the Great Fire of London. Lord's Day, September the 2nd, 1666. Some of our maids sitting up last night to get things ready against our feast today, Jane called us up about three in the morning to tell us of a great fire they saw in the city. So I rose and slipped on my nightgown and went to her window and thought it to be on the back side of Mark Lane at the furthest, but being unused to such fires as followed, I thought it far enough off and so went to bed again and to sleep. About seven I rose again to dress myself and there looked out at the window and saw the fire not so much as it was and further off. So to my closet to set things to rights after yesterday's cleaning, By and by, Jane comes and tells me that she hears that above 300 houses have been burned down tonight by the fire we saw, and that it was now burning down all Fish Street by London Bridge. So I made myself ready presently, and walked to the tower, and there got up on one of the high places, Sir J. Robinson's little son going up with me, and there I did see the houses at that end of the bridge, all on fire, and an infinite great fire on this and the other side the end of the bridge, which, among other people, did trouble me for poor little Michael and our Sarah on the bridge. So down, with my heart full of trouble, to the lieutenant of the tower, who tells me that it begun this morning in the King's Baker's house in Pudding Lane, and that it has burnt down St Magnus Church and most part of Fish Street already. So I down to the waterside, and there got a boat and through bridge, and there saw a lamentable fire. Poor Mitchell's house, as far as the old swan, already burnt that way, and the fire running further, that in a very little time it got as far as Stillyard while I was there. Everybody endeavouring to remove their goods and flinging into the river or bringing them into lighters that lay off. Poor people staying in their houses as long as till the very fire touched them and then running into boats or clambering from one pair of stairs by the waterside to another. And among other things, the poor pigeons, I perceive, were loath to leave their houses but hovered about the windows and balconies till they were some of them burned their wings and fell down. Having stayed and in an hour's time seen the fire rage every way, and nobody to my sight endeavouring to quench it, but to remove their goods and leave all to the fire, and having seen it get as far as the steel yard, and the wind mighty high, and driving it into the city, and everything after so long a drought, proving combustible, even the very stones of churches, and among other things the poor steeple by which pretty Mrs. Horsley lives, and whereof my old schoolfellow Elbra is a parson, taken fire in the very top, and there burned till it fall down. I to Whitehall, with a gentleman with me, who desired to go off from the tower to see the fire in my boat, to Whitehall, and there up to the king's closet in the chapel, where people came about me, and I did give them an account, dismayed them all, And word was carried in to the king, so I was called for, and did tell the king and Duke of York what I saw, and that unless his majesty did command houses to be pulled down, nothing could stop the fire. They seemed much troubled, and the king commanded me to go to buy Lord Mayor from him, and command him to spare no houses to 
but to pull them down before the fire every way. The Duke of York bid me to tell him that if he would have any more soldiers, he shall, and so did my Lord Arlington afterward as a great secret. Here meeting with Captain Cock, I in his coach which he lent me and creed with me to Paul's, and there walked along Watling Street as well as I could, every creature coming away loaden with goods to save, and here and there sick people carried away in beds. Extraordinary good goods are carried in carts and on backs. At last met my Lord Mayor in Canning Street like a man spent with a handkerchief around his neck. To the king's message he cried like a fainted woman, Lord, what can I do? I'm spent, people will not obey me. I've been pulling down houses, but the fire overtakes us faster, then we can do it. That he needed no more soldiers, and that for himself he must go and refresh himself, having been up all night. So he left me, and I him, and walked home, seeing people all almost distracted, and no manner of means used to quench the fire. The houses too, so very thick thereabouts, and full of matter for burning as pitch and tar in Thames Street, and warehouses of oil and wines and brandy and other things. Here I saw Mr. Isaac Hoblan, that handsome man, prettily dressed and dirty, at his door at Dowgate, receiving some of his brothers whose houses were on fire, and as he says, have been removed twice already, and he doubts, as soon proved, that they must be in a little time removed from his house also, which was a sad consideration. And to see the churches all filling with goods by people who themselves should have been quietly there at this time. As soon as dined, I and Moon away and walked through the city, the streets full of nothing but people and horses and carts loaden with goods, ready to run over one another and removing goods from one burnt house to another. They now removing out of Canning Street, which received goods in the morning, into Lombard Street and further, and among others I now saw my little goldsmith Stokes receiving some friend's goods, whose house itself was burned the day after. We parted at Poole's, he home and I to Paul's Wharf, where I had pointed a new boat to attend me, and took a Mr. Carcass and his brother, whom I met in the street, and carried them below and above bridge to and again to see the fire, which was now got further both below and above, and no likelihood of stopping it. Met with the King and Duke of York in their barge, and with them to Queen Hythe, and there called Sir Rodney Brown to them. Their order was only to pull down houses apace, and so below bridge at the waterside but little was or could be done, the fire coming upon them so fast. Good hopes there was of stopping it at the three cranes above, and at Bulthoff's wharf below bridge, if care be used, but the wind carries it into the city, so as we know not by the waterside what it doth there. River full of lighters and boats taken in goods and good goods swimming in the water and only, I observed, that hardly one lighter or boat in three had had the goods of a house in, but there was a pair of virginals in it. Having seen as much as I could now, I away to Whitehall by appointment and there walked to St. James's Park and there met my wife and Creed and Wood and his wife and walked to my boat and there upon the water again and to the fire up and down, it still increasing and the wind great. So near the fire as we could for smoke and all over the Thames with one's face in the wind you were almost burned with a shower of fire drops. This is very true. So as houses were burned by these drops and flakes of fire three or four nay five or six houses one from another 
When we could endure no more upon the water, we to a little alehouse on the bank side over against the three cranes, and there stayed till it was dark almost, and saw the fire grow, and as it grew darker appeared more and more, and in corners and upon steeples and between churches and houses, as far as we could see up the hill of the city, in a most horrid, malicious, bloody flame, not like a fine flame of an ordinary fire. Barbary and her husband away before us, we stayed till, it being darkish, we saw the fire as only one entire arch of fire, from this to the other side of the bridge, and in a bow up the hill, for an arch of above a mile long. It made me weep to see it. The churches, houses, and all on fire, and flaming at once, and a horrid noise the flames made, and the cracking of houses at their ruin. Nearly 300 years later, on the 1st of September, 1939, Hilda Merchant's report on the evacuation of children from London at the beginning of the Second World War. It was not until Friday morning, September the 1st, that I really took the sharp, agonised breath of war. That day it began in a slum in London. The officer told me to cover the evacuation of some of London's school children, There had been great preparations for the scheme, preparations that raised strong criticism. Evacuation would split the British home, divide child and parent, break that domestic background that was our strength. I went to a block of working-class flats at the back of Grey's End Road and in the early morning saw a tiny, frail, cockney child walking across to school. The child had a big brown paper parcel in her hand and was dragging it along. But as she turned, I saw a brown box banging against her thin legs. It bumped up and down at every step, slung by a thin string over her shoulder. It was Florence Morecambe, an English schoolchild with a gas mask instead of a satchel over her shoulder. I went along with Florence to her school. It was a big council school and the classrooms were filled with children, parcels and gas masks. The desks and blackboards were piled up in a heap in one corridor, They were not going to school for lessons. They were going on a holiday. The children were excited and happy because their parents had told them they were going away to the country. Many of them, like my little Florence, had never seen greenfields. Their playground was the tarmac or a sandpit in the concrete square at the back. I watched the school teachers calling out their names and tying luggage labels in their coats, checking their parcels to see they were warm and clean clothes. On the gates of the school were two fat policemen. They were letting the children through, but gently asking the parents not to come further. They might disturb the children. So mothers and fathers were saying goodbye, straightening the girls' hair, getting the boys to blow their noses, and lightly and quickly kissing them. The parents stood outside while the children went to be registered in their classrooms. There was quite a long wait before the small army got its orders through from the London County Council to move off. In the meantime, I sat in the school playground watching these thin, wiry little cockneys playing their rough-and-push games on the faded netball pitch. It was disturbing, for through the high grill their mothers pressed their faces trying to see the one child that resembled them. Every now and then... The policeman would call out a child's name and a mother who had forgotten a bar of chocolate or a toothbrush had a last chance to tell a child to be good, to write and to straighten her hat. Labelled and lined up, the children began to move out of the school. 
I followed Florence, her live, tiny face bobbing about white among so many navy blue school caps. She was chatting her way to an older schoolgirl, wanting to know what the country was like, where they were going, what games they would play on the grass. On one side of Gray's Inn Road, this ragged crocodile moved towards the tube station. On the other were mothers who were waving and running along to see the last of their children. The police had asked them not to follow, but they couldn't resist. The children scrambled down into the tube. Well, from evacuation at the beginning of the Second World War, we go back nearly 40 years to the 2nd of September 1898 and the Battle of Omdurman, where Kitchener crushed the Sudanese separatist movement using machine guns, artillery and naval guns against the simply armed Mahdist forces. About 20,000 were killed and wounded. British casualties were 500. This report is by Winston Churchill. I took six men and a corporal. We trotted fast over the plain and soon began to breast the unknown slopes of the ridge. There is nothing like the dawn. The quarter of an hour before the curtain is lifted upon an unknowable situation is an intense experience of war. Was the ridge held by the enemy or not? Were we riding through the gloom into thousands of ferocious savages? Every step might be deadly, yet there was no time for overmuch precaution. The regiment was coming on behind us and dawn was breaking. It was already half light as we climbed the slope. What should we find at the summit? For cool, tense excitement, I commend such moments. Now we're near the top of the ridge. I make one man follow a hundred yards behind so that whatever happens he may tell the tale. There is no sound but our own clatter. We have reached the crest line. We rein in our horses. Every minute the horizon extends. We can already see 200 yards. Now we can see perhaps a quarter of a mile. All is quiet. No life but our own breaths among the rocks and sand hummocks of the ridge. No ambuscade, no occupation in force. The farther plain is bare below us. We can now see more than half a mile. So they've all decamped. Just what we said. All bolted off to Cordofan. No battle. But wait. The dawn is growing fast. Veil after veil is lifted from the landscape. What is this shimmering in the distant plain? Nay, it is lighter now. What are these dark markings beneath the shimmer? They're there. These enormous black smears are thousands of men. The shimmering is the glinting of their weapons. It is now daylight. I slip off my horse. I write in my field service notice book. The dervish army is still in position a mile and a half southwest of Jebel Sergum. I send this message by the corporal direct as ordered to the commander-in-chief. I mark it XXX in the words of the drill book with all dispatch or as one would say hell for the leather. A glorious sunrise is taking place behind us but we're admiring something else. It is already light enough to use field glasses. The dark masses are changing their values. They are already becoming lighter than the plain. They are fawn-coloured. Now they are a kind of white while the plain is done. In front of us is a vast array four or five miles long. It fills the horizon till it is blocked out onto our right by the serrated silhouette of Sergum Peak. This is an hour to live. We mount again and suddenly new impressions strike the eye and mind. These masses are not stationary. They are advancing and they are advancing fast. A tide is coming in. 
But what is this sound which we hear, a deadened roar coming upon us in waves? They are cheering for God, his prophet, and his holy Khalifa. They think they are going to win. We shall see about that presently. Still, I must admit that we check our horses and hang upon the crest of the ridge for a few moments before advancing down its slopes. But now it is broad morning, and the slanting sun adds brilliant colour to the scene. The masses have defined themselves into swarms of men, in order ranks bright with glittering weapons, and above them dance a multitude of gorgeous flags. We see for ourselves what the crusaders saw. From where we sat on our horses, we could see both sides. There was our army ranked and massed by the river. They were the gunboats lying expectant in the stream. There were all the batteries ready to open, and meanwhile on the other side this large oblong gay-coloured crowd in fairly good order climbed swiftly up to the crest of exposure. We were about 2,500 yards from our own batteries, but little more than 200 from their approaching target. I called these dervishes the White Flags. They reminded me of the armies in the Bayeux tapestries because of their rows of white and yellow standards held upright. Meanwhile, the dervish centre far out in the plain had come within range, and one after another of the British and Egyptian batteries opened upon it. My eyes were riveted by a nearer scene. At the top of the hill, the white flags paused to rearrange their ranks and drew out a broad and solid parade along the crest. Then the cannonade turned upon them. Two or three batteries and all the gunboats, at least thirty guns, opened an intense fire. Their shells shrieked towards us and burst in scores over the heads and among the masses of the white flagmen. We were so close as we sat spellbound on our horses that we almost shared their perils. I saw the full blast of death strike this human wall. Down went their standards by dozens and their men by hundreds. Wide gaps and shapeless heaps appeared in their array. One saw them jumping and tumbling under the shrapnel burst, but none turned back. Line after line, they all streamed over the shoulder and advanced towards our zareba, opening a heavy rifle fire which wreathed them in smoke. Hitherto, no one had taken any notice of us, but I now saw Bagara horsemen in twos and threes riding across the plain on our left towards the ridge. One of these patrols of three men came within pistol range. They were dark, cowled figures, like monks on horseback, ugly, sinister brutes with long spears. I fired a few shots at them from the saddle and they sheared off. I did not see why we should not stop out on this ridge during the assault. I thought we could edge back toward the Nile and so watch both sides while keeping out of harm's way. But now arrived a positive order from Major Finn saying, Come back at once into the Zreba as the infantry are about to open fire. We should, in fact, have been safer on the ridge if we only just got into the infantry lines before the rifle storm began. As soon as the fire began to slacken and it was said on all sides that the attack had been repulsed, a general arrived with his staff at a gallop with instant order to mount and advance. In two minutes, the four squadrons were mounted and trotting out of the Zreba in a southerly direction. We ascended again the slopes of Jebel Sergum, which had played part on in the first stages of the action, and from its ridges soon saw before us the whole plain of Omdurman with the vast mud city, its minarets and domes, spread before us six or seven miles away. After various halts and reconnoitrings, we found ourselves walking to forward in what is called the Column of Troops. There were four troops in a squadron and four squadrons in a regiment. 
Each of these troops now followed the other. I commanded the second troop from the rear, comprising between twenty and twenty-five lancers. Everyone expected that we were going to make a charge. That was the one idea that had been all in the mind since we'd started from Cairo. Of course, there would be a charge. In those days, before the Boer War, British cavalry had been taught little else. Here was clearly the occasion for a charge. But against what body of enemy? Over what ground? In which direction? Or with what purpose? Were matters hidden from the rank and file. We continued to pace forward over the hard sand, peering into the mirage-twisted plain in a high state of suppressed excitement. Presently, I noted, 300 yards or so away on our flank and parallel to the line on which we were advancing, a long row of blue-black objects two or three yards apart. I thought there were about 150. Then I became sure that these were men, enemy men, squatting on the ground. Almost at the same moment, the trumpet sounded trot, and the whole long column of cavalry began to jingle and clatter across the front of these crouching figures. We were in the lull of the battle, and there was perfect silence. Forthwith, from every blue-black blob, came a white puff of smoke, and a loud volley of musketry broke the odd stillness. Such a target, at such a distance, could scarcely be missed, and all along the column here and there, horses bounded, and a few men fell. The intentions of our colonel had no doubt been to move around the flank of the body of dervishes he had now located, and who, concealed in a fold of the ground behind their riflemen, were invisible to us, and then to attack them from a more advantageous quarter. But once the fire was opened and losses began to grow, he must have judged it inexpedient to prolong his procession across the open plain. The trumpet sounded, "'Right wheel into line!' and all the sixteen troops swung round towards the blue-black riflemen. Almost immediately, the regiment broke into a gallop, and the twenty-first lancers were committed to their first charge in war. I propose to describe exactly what happened to me, what I saw, and what I felt. The troop I commanded was, when we wheeled into line, the second from the right of the regiment. I was riding a handy, sure-footed, grey Arab polo pony, and before we wheeled and began to gallop, the officers had been marching with drawn swords. On account of my shoulder, I had always decided that if I were involved in hand-to-hand fighting, I must use a pistol and not a sword. I had purchased in London a Mauser automatic pistol and the newest and latest design. I had practised carefully with this during our march and journey up the river. This, then, was the weapon with which I determined to fight— I had first of all to return my sword into its scabbard, which is not the easiest thing to do at a gallop. I then had to draw my pistol from its wooden holster and bring it to full cock. This dual operation took an appreciable time, and until it was finished, apart from a few glances to my left to see what effect the fire was producing, I did not look up at the general scene. Then I saw immediately before me, and now only half the length of a polo ground away, the row of crouching blue figures firing frantically wreathed in white smoke. On my right and left, my neighbouring troop leaders made a good line. Immediately behind was a long dancing row of lances couched for the charge. We were going at a fast but steady gallop. There was too much trampling and rifle fire to hear any bullets. After this glance to the right and left and at my troop, I looked again towards the enemy. The scene appeared to be suddenly transformed. The blue-black men were still firing, but behind them 
there now came into view a depression like a shallow sunken road. This was crowded and crammed, with men rising up from the ground where they'd hidden. Bright flags appeared as if by magic, and I saw arriving from nowhere emirs on horseback among and around the mass of the enemy. The dervishes appeared to be ten or twelve deep at the thickest, a great grey mass gleaming with steel, filling the dry watercourse. In the same twinkling of an eye, I saw that our right overlapped their left, that my troop would just strike the edge of their array, and that the troop on my right would charge into air. My subaltern comrade on the right, Wormald of the Seventh Hussars, could see the situation too, and we both increased our speed to the very fastest gallop and curved inwards like the horns of the moon. One really had not time to be frightened or to think of anything else but these particular necessary actions which I have described. They completely occupied mind and senses. The collision was now very near. I saw immediately before me, not ten yards away, the two blue men who lay in my path. They were perhaps a couple of yards apart. I rode at the interval between them. They both fired. I passed through the smoke, conscious that I was unhurt. The trooper immediately behind me was killed at this place, and at this moment, whether by these shots or not, I do not know. I checked my pony as the ground began to fall away beneath his feet. The clever animal dropped like a cat four or five feet down on the sandy bed of the watercourse, and in this sandy bed I found myself surrounded by what seemed to be dozens of men. They were not thickly packed enough at this point for me to experience any actual collision with them, whereas Grenfell's troop, next but one on my left, was brought to a complete standstill and suffered very heavy losses. We seemed to push our way through, as one has sometimes seen mounted police break up a crowd. In less time than it takes to relate, my pony had scrambled up on the other side of the ditch. I looked around. Once again I was on the hard, crisp desert, my horse at a trot. I had the impression of scattered dervishes running to and fro in all directions. Straight before me, a man threw himself on the ground. The reader must remember that I had been trained as a cavalry soldier to believe that if ever cavalry broke into a mass of infantry, the latter would be at their mercy. My first idea, therefore, was that the man was terrified. But simultaneously I saw the gleam of his curved sword as he drew it back from a hamstringing cut. I had room and time enough to turn my pony out of his reach, and leaning over on the offside I fired two shots into him at about three yards. As I straightened myself in the saddle, I saw before me another figure with uplifted sword. I raised my pistol and fired. So close were we that the pistol itself actually struck him. Man and sword disappeared below me. On my left, ten yards away, was an Arab horseman in a bright-coloured tunic and steel helmet with chainmail hangings. I fired at him. He turned aside. I pulled my horse into a walk and looked round again. There was a mass of dervishes about forty or fifty yards away on my left. They were huddling and clumping themselves together, rallying for mutual protection. They seemed wild with excitement, dancing about on their feet, shaking their spears up and down. The whole scene seemed to flicker. I have an impression, but it is too fleeting to define, of a brown-clad lancers mixed up here and there with this surging mob. The scattered individuals in my immediate neighbourhood made no attempt to molest me. Was Where was my troop? Where were the other troops of the squadron? Within a hundred yards of me I could not see a single officer or man. I looked back at the dervish mass 
I saw two or three riflemen crouching and aiming their rifles at me from the fringe of it. Then for the first time that morning, I experienced a sudden sensation of fear. I felt myself absolutely alone. I thought these riflemen would hit me and the rest devour me like wolves. What a fool I was to loiter like this in the midst of the enemy. I crouched over the saddle, spurred my horse into a gallop and drew clear of the melee. Two or three hundred yards away, I found my troop already faced about and partly formed up. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias www.soundimage.org